Hello and welcome to the Talking Mortality podcast. Here we'll be discussing some of the difficulties and challenges in the practice of modern medicine with a particular focus on the care of patients who might be approaching the end of life. My name is Dr Calvin Lightbody and I'm a consultant in emergency medicine working in action emergency in the United Kingdom National Health Service. This episode is called Addressing Critical Illness. What does the term critical illness mean? What are the possible outcomes and implications for individual patients? How can we navigate some of these challenges? If someone is so ill that they might die, what are the important conversations and plans that perhaps need to happen or be made at this time? Joining me again to discuss this subject is my friend and colleague, Professor Robin Taylor. Robin is a consultant in respiratory medicine with 40 years of healthcare experience here in the United Kingdom and also in New Zealand. For the past few years, Robin has been working to try and improve the care of patients who have a life-limiting illness. Good morning, Robin. It's uh, good to be back here in Edinburgh to discuss this episode of Talking Mortality. How are you doing today? Good morning, Calvin. It's good to be here. Excellent. Robin, we're going we're gonna to take on this challenge of talking about uh, critical illness and uh, this episode addressing critical mm-hmm. illness. Let's just start by looking at that definition. What, what, do you, what does the term critical illness mean? Well, if you're attaching an adjective critical to the word illness, obviously there's a severity or an intensity or an uncertainty that's going to be attached to that particular episode. Sometimes critical illness occurs, certainly in patients I deal with, critical illness occurs as a complication or as an exacerbation of an underlying condition. For example, COPD or interstitial lung disease or lung cancer. But the challenges of critical illness are are to do with A, what is the prognosis, and B, what is the appropriateness of treatment given the sort of context I've just described? Right. So I think this is something I've had to work on in, in, in my understanding, certainly in recent years, that critical illness isn't just a, a binary outcome. It isn't you're going to get better or you're going to die. No. There's a bit more to it than that, isn't there? Yes, I think the binary model is something that we've inherited. Um, and certainly in your setting, and in the acute medical wards or acute surgical wards, the the driver to problem solve, to disease manage, is really powerful. Now, I mean, I'm a respiratory physician, so if I give you an example, if somebody comes in with a bronchopneumonia, if they're 25 years of age and they've got pneumonia, then you're going to manage them both curatively and with the focus exclusively on the disease. But, of course, we all know that the majority of pneumonias don't occur in 25-year-olds. They occur in 75 and 85-year-olds. And in that setting, disease focus is far less important than context focus, if that makes sense. Yes. So the the likelihood of a modified recovery is much more likely, perhaps, in more advanced years, but not exclusively by any means. Yes, well... You have to determine in the person who's got chronic disease who has a critical event, what are the goals of care? And the goals of care could be full recovery, and that's quite legitimate, even in a 95-year-old. But it may not be appropriate 
and it's less likely to be appropriate if, per, if people have been on a, an illness trajectory for some considerable time, in which case you might have say, well, what are the goals of care going to be given that background? And the challenge that we face is to try to modify our goals of care and wean ourselves away from just having a single focus, which is getting rid of pneumococcus or some pathogen that's causing the pneumonia. And we're actually we're actually we have a broader view of what we're what we're actually meant to be doing. Yeah, so so we're we're, we're reflecting back on some of the things we talked about in the first episode, uh, where we talked about context and appropriateness and. Yes. We talked a lot about um, patients who are on on a trajectory that's perhaps leading towards the end of life. Now, Robin, I want to, to use an imaginary situation here. I want you to imagine that you're the patient who's on that end of life trajectory and you've been admitted to the high dependency unit. You're attached to a number of machines and monitors. You've got various drips and catheters in your body. What are you likely to be thinking at this time? Well, that's quite difficult for me because... <laughs> Professionally, I can imagine a lot more than the non-professional person. Uh-huh. Um, some of it horrifies me because I have inside knowledge. Uh, in fact, it's very interesting that um, whether it's CPR or a whole host of other major interventions, if you ask most doctors, many of them will, will uh, say, oh, I, I would be very unhappy if I were to receive that. That's right. So you're lying there thinking, I think there's the distress of being physically unwell. But there's also the existential distress, if you like. And, and it's summarised, I think, for me in the, in the question, what does the future hold? Am I going to survive two days, three days? Am I going to survive to get out of hospital? And then what's it going to be like? My daughter lives down in Bristol. My son is overseas. I'm on my own. My husband died or my wife died two years ago. There are all these things about the future. I think the future, what does the future hold is a way of if you ask that question and then try to see it from the patient's point of view, I think you've got an, uh, a gateway into something that's important sure. and helpful. So it comes back to that issue of, of uncertainty again, that you're, you're lying there maybe thinking, what's going to happen next? And am I going to get out of here? Yes. And of course, you're lying there and along comes a consultant and a trainee doctor and a nurse to, on a ward round and they too have uncertainty. I think one of the problems here is that the clinicians have to learn to cope with uncertainty and have to we have to have styles and um, responses which allow uncertainty be to be accommodated because we're all uncertain. Mm-hmm. So uh, just thinking about the, that doctor that's come around then, if you were able to, or perhaps you were advocating for somebody that you cared for, what, what questions do you think you'd want to ask that doctor? Well, the obvious question is, from the patient's point of view, am I going to get better? Mm-hmm. But that's the primary. If that's the primary question, there are a lot of secondary questions. The secondary questions are, you know, if I get better, what, what's life going to be like? And what I do is I try to get the patient to contemplate uh, the future in the light of the recent past. Now, we all know that approximately 85% of patients die with an illness trajectory that's been unfolding over weeks or months. And so if I have a patient with COPD or interstitial lung disease, I try in a brief conversation to get them to reflect on what's happened in the last 6-12 months. And use that as a, as a way of exploring the next few months. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a bit harsh and uh, uh, terribly insensitive to say, you know, we'll call him John. Well, John, 
look, your lungs have been getting worse and worse. I don't think there's much we can achieve here. It's far better if you say to John, John, how, um, I, I hear you, you were in you were in the hospital a year ago, isn't that right? And he says, yes. And you were in at Christmas time and he says, yes. I said, well, how, what's your life been like in between these hospital admissions? What's life been like? And then I say something along the lines, um, so do you think things have changed since your first hospital admission a year ago? And so you get them to imagine their trajectory. Mm-hmm. Now, here comes the difficult bit, because then you have to lead them into the future in the conversation. You say, well, you know, this is the way things have been going, and I'm sure I can treat your pneumonia, but I'm not sure I can change the pattern of things that's been established. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a way of leading the patient into a contemplating their future, which makes it easier for me. You may say, well, that's a, is it a lazy way? Of, I don't think it's a lazy way of doing it. I think it's, I think it's really helpful for the patient to contemplate the future. It's a part of the shared decision-making right. process. So we're really thinking about prognosis, essentially, here. We're, yes. And it isn't just about, about time, perhaps, but what is going to happen next? I and mean, Maybe that's something we should discuss a bit more. What, what does prognosis mean in this kind of situation? Well, the word prognosis, uh, in many minds, is how long have I got? And certainly if somebody comes in critically ill, there may be a prognosis as to whether they're going to survive 24, 48 hours or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with the use of that word in that, in that setting. But prognosis um, for the future once they get out of hospital is not just, am I going to survive three months till the next admission and my death? It's not a timeline. In fact, you know and I know that even trying to anticipate whether somebody dies in 24 or 48 hours when they're really ill is fraught with hazard. You shouldn't do it. But the, the, so I'm, what I've been trying to do is change um, both my approach and those whom I'm responsible for teaching it, is to change what, what the idea of prognosis means. And it just means what does the future hold? And that's actually a far easier and more and less problematic concept than how long have I got? So if you're exploring that prognosis and... You're really being truthful. You're being realistic and honest here. Is there a risk that you could perhaps remove hope from the patient, remove hope from this situation? (laughs) Well, in the age of Donald Trump, I have to tell you that truth has become an even more precious commodity. For sure. (laughs) Um, I think this is a moment when I would ask you to put yourself in the place of the patient. And if you came across a clinician who is telling you white lies or skating over what was important to you, you wouldn't really appreciate it. Yeah, I guess it's, it's because it's difficult. It's uncomfortable, perhaps. As a doctor, you want to always err on the side of, 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 uh, of positivity, that you'd be wanting to talk about the, all the things that you can do. Well, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's as a doctor. I think it's as a human being. Mm. I I think this is a human factor. I don't think it's a professional factor. It's just it happens to have to be worked out most commonly in the professional setting. Um, I don't like telling you bad things about yourself and I don't think you would like telling me bad things about myself. But there's an obligation here. There's an ethical responsibility. And um, I think whatever our feelings on the inside, we have to recognise that learning to communicate the truth is in the end of the day helpful. Now, there's timing and there's wording. There are communication skills. Some are good and some are not so good. 
But irrespective of these factors, it needs to be something that we are willing to engage with. Yeah, I think what I've seen as well, Robin, is what happens when those honest, truthful conversations haven't taken place. When I've had patients coming through the emergency department with a with a terminal or critical illness. And they've got no understanding of their disease process of what's been happening because those conversations haven't happened. They've been admitted a few times. They've maybe been at a clinic with a specialist a few times, but really they still have no real understanding. That's right. In my realm of respiratory medicine, um, the data on uh, how well patients understand what COPD is, you would think it's one of the commonest chronic conditions out there. You would think that patients would understand what COPD is and its prognosis over time and only about 20 to 30 percent with COPD that's been in there been in there for months if not years only between 20 to 30 percent have that understanding Mm. that's shocking isn't it I can think of a couple of examples of patients who have been admitting to the hospital with a complication of a respiratory illness and they've said something along the lines of I hope they get to the bottom of the problem this time Uh like there's some kind of thing that hasn't been addressed yet and it really just shows that that understanding just just isn't there. Yes, chances are that people have got to the bottom of it a long time ago. And just, just haven't communicated, yeah. for sure. So I think one of the things I've heard some doctors and colleagues say is that they, they skirt around this or avoid this because they're worried that it will have an adverse effect on the doctor-patient relationship. But what would you say to those people? Well, well, just before I answer your question, let's keep in mind that between 15 and 20% of patients will say, I do not want a prognostic conversation. I don't want to anticipate my future. We have to respect that. So we have to respect that, and you have to have a consent. Are you comfortable? Johnny, are you you okay if if we talk about not just what your illness now, but what what may lie ahead for you? So that's the first point. But that also means that about 80-85% of people actually want the conversation. Now, in my experience, some are upset, Certainly the next of kin might be upset. Why did you tell my mother that? Why did you tell my father that? Well, usually I say it's because they asked. But uh, even if they didn't ask, I say, well, it's really important that we think of the future in an honest way. And there's, there's this false understanding, on the, it's largely on the part of the medics, that, that, that to do so with honesty is going to destroy... We talked about hope. We didn't actually pick up on it too much a moment ago, that you're going to destroy their hope for the future. But hope doesn't rest, actually, in a falsehood. The hope of a patient who's got a critical illness or who's got a, an illness that's been going on for some time, hope lies in other things. Mm. So, that, that, yes, hope isn't just about cure, perhaps. It's about a, a positive thought that, that not necessarily you'll get better, but what time you have left will be will be good time, will be time that you could spend with your family and perhaps that your symptoms be better managed. Yes. <clears throat> well, there's a range. There's, I hope um, my suffering over the next while will not, will, will somebody will take charge of that and it'll not get out of control. There's the hope that they'll not be left alone. There's the hope that um, they may in the fullness of time, die at home rather than in hospital. There are a variety of hopes which are only served by being truthful. Interestingly, there was a large study done on patients who were engaging with an anticipatory or an advanced care plan um, 
and all of them had cancer, about 200, but they were all evaluated by a psychologist and they had measuring tools to assess hope and hopelessness and also anxiety and depression. And none of the interventions regarding anticipatory or advanced care planning had any impact whatsoever on these objective measures. So although there can be emotional disturbance at the time of a conversation, a prognostic conversation, it's short-lived and the benefits in in the fullness of time far outweigh the present sense of risk. Yeah, I would certainly echo that and certainly that's what I found in the last few years when I've changed my practice a little bit to try and include this reality and honest conversation with with patients. It it takes a little bit more time but it's time that's really, really well spent. Yes, um, as you know I've been um, doing some teaching and coaching um, at a consultant level as much as uh, among trainee staff on the subject of prognostic conversation. And the time factor is always brought forward to me as a reason why it's not done. Well, certainly in an acute medical or surgical ward, time is precious. It's pressured. In the mindset of many clinicians, the idea of a prognostic conversation is equated with a breaking bad news conversation. But they're actually not the same thing. Engaging with the patient to reflect for five minutes on where they've come from and where they're going doesn't require all the intensity and the detail that there is, for example, when I have a patient with lung cancer and they've just had a bronchoscopy and a biopsy and I have to sit down, go through the results and then go through the issues of what are the treatment options. That's a far more substantial conversation. So whether it's on the issue of hope or the issue of time, I think... Well, these are these these need to be uh, seen for what they are. They are not fundamental obstacles to doing this sort of thing better. Yeah, I mean, the time I've chosen to have these conversations is when I've, the decision's been made to admit the patient and they're going to need some further inpatient mm-hmm. treatment, and I'll spend some time talking to them about that. What do you think would be a useful kind of trigger for having that conversation how could we think about this would be a good time to have a truthful honest conversation about prognosis that's quite a difficult one because there are a range i mean there's the trigger that comes from within myself in seeing the way that a patient's um illness trajectory is progressing and i look upon an admission as a moment of opportunity but sometimes you get signals from the patient themselves but they're usually subtle <laughs> they're not they're not usually in your face and um, one of the things that we've done in our ward is to um train our uh ward assistants they're the team who you know serve the teas and the coffees and the lunches and take the patient to the shower and make the beds and so on and we've we've asked them to pick up signals for example if you've got an old lady who's you know being helped to the shower or helped to the bath uh, and she's due for a, you know, I'm making this up, but due for a colonoscopy the next day. And she says, and she says to the healthcare assistant, I don't know why they're doing this. I, I'm not sure I need this. Then that's actually the sort of signal that says, sure, we can explore why are we doing a colonoscopy or why are we doing another type of investigation or whatever. And we explore the reasons for the patient making that statement and that there are little there are little signals that a patient can give our ward assistants now feed that back to a multidisciplinary team meeting because the, she, the patient may not say to me as the consultant on the ward round 
doctor, I don't want the colonoscopy, mm-hmm. or I don't want the gastroscopy, or whatever it is, yeah. but they may say to other members of staff, and so it's a team approach. So I, I guess if those those opportunities are missed, what will happen is that the, the patient will just be subjected to the whole range of, of interventions and tests and procedures and so forth without ever having the opportunity to engage in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it's Well, you're, the word they use is engagement. And sure, there are people without capacity. There are people who are temporarily without capacity with confusion and delirium and so on and so forth. And we have to, we have to navigate that. But um, by and large, the the opportunities are actually there for the taking and we just need to be sensitised both to the issues, the issues that we've been discussing as well as the signals and the triggers that you, dis- you, you the word was the word you used, the triggers that can enable that sort of thing to happen. So is it fair to say that these conversations aren't happening enough in our hospitals today? Oh, I think everybody would agree that. If you look at the... Um, I've been involved in a study of patient complaints and the complaints have been lodged by the patient's families uh, after the patient has deceased. Um, And uh, a huge number of these complaints are associated with misunderstanding, poor communication, um, tensions generated by the different expectations and different goals of care. And um, usually it's because the things aren't these these issues haven't been brought out into the open. So I think there's a huge amount can be done both in terms of patient relation patient doctor relationships and patient family relationships through this. But I also think it spills over into what we actually then prescribe or then and what we actually order, whether it's a colonoscopy or a, an IV antibiotics at high cost or whatever. There's a there's a knock on consequence of all this, which is beneficial to everybody. Mm. I think what you talked about there with the with the complaints is, was echoed in the parliamentary ombudsman report in 2016 called "Dying Without Dignity," mm. and it really highlighted the the fact that the recurring thing that happened with patients' families when they were reflecting on the care of their loved ones at the end of life was that communication just hadn't happened uh-huh. uh, there was a misunderstanding yes. there was a continuation of a curative approach even though it was clear that yes. the, the patient w- was dying and that there was this ambiguity that the, the, the fact that the patient needed palliative care those things just weren't happening yes. one of the things that is that um, although you or I or any of our colleagues may commit ourselves to doing this better we actually also need to function Within teams who are who have a consensus on this, um, and because certainly in the medical wards that I've worked in, there's discontinuity of care. There's the conversation can take place with a staff nurse, and then the conversation takes place with a doctor. And and if there's just the, if the nuancing of that is slightly different, there's the capacity for misunderstanding. So I think part of our approach at the moment is actually to try and get all our team members on the same page about these issues. And I'm, as I've mentioned, there's ward assistants and junior FY1s. We all need to be in the same place. We don't all need to have the same skills, but we all need to be able to engage on the level of the prognostic conversation, as we're calling it, um, or li- or li- the pro- prognostic listening, <laughs> if that's a phrase I haven't used before. But if we're all on the same page, then we're we're going to have a, make it easier for ourselves. 
Never mind for the patients. So we should be encouraging our patients to ask these questions mm-hmm. and explore these mm-hmm. things, but we should also encourage all members of the healthcare team uh-huh. to look for opportunities to, to have that conversation yes. with, with an opportunity presents. I agree. Okay. Robin, I think we'll, we'll probably just uh, wind it up there. I think we've, we've covered uh, the issues with, with truthfulness, with hope, uh, with, uh, with exploring some of the, the things that need to happen with a prognostic conversation. Robin, thanks very much for your, for your time this morning. Very good. Thank Take you. Care. Cheers. Pleasure. Okay, so let's spend a moment going over what we've just discussed. A patient who is critically ill is at a point where there are three possible outcomes. Improvement to full recovery deterioration and dying, or perhaps a phase of partial recovery, and there will be a degree of uncertainty as to which of these outcomes will be the case. To help with all this uncertainty, it is useful to consider what might happen next. This is the essence of prognosis, and a good prognostic conversation is one where the likely future for an individual is discussed. It is helpful to reflect on how things have been going in the weeks or months leading up to this time, as this will help bring some understanding as to what might happen next. So prognosis is about looking to the future. It's not just about how long you have left. It's an understandable concern that talking about a future that includes the possibility of dying might extinguish hope. Research in this area, however, suggests that this is not in fact the case. Indeed, one's hope is more likely to be found in an aspiration to spend quality time with family, to have symptoms controlled, to get home from hospital rather than have the next test or investigation or treatment carried out. Not everyone wants to think this way or to talk about these matters, and we must respect this. However, the significant majority of people do want to have that conversation. I would encourage all healthcare staff to facilitate and encourage open and honest conversations about prognosis. This will allow a greater degree of patient involvement in decisions about their own health care and maximise their understanding. So that's it. All that remains for me to say is thank you for listening to the Talking Mortality podcast. If you're able to leave comments or review, that would be great. And I'd welcome comments or questions for further episodes on Twitter at CJBlue72 underscore or to Robin Taylor at RT Lungs. Take care and have a good day.